in our world, we're more and more connected and more and more mixed, bringing the diversity conversation at every level and in every environment. But are we tolerating the diversity or really embracing and celebrating it? My guest today, Vicky Boo Davis, shares her journey of embracing her uniqueness and recognizing that diversity, it's a beautiful and natural thing and can bring the biggest growth and best experiences. Through her life journey and her choices, she gave us an example of how to own your own differences, challenge the status quo, and always take action about the issues that you care about and that touches you emotionally. I often hear how some people want to help. Helping what, I ask? The answer many times is help people, and it seems something they need to save the world with some heroic action. And although there are some people who thankfully do that, Others don't realize that a very important thing is to be connected to the problem or situation. As Vicky points out, this will not only give you the motivation to keep going, but also a wisdom that many decision makers don't have to solve that same problem. With Vicky Boo Davis, we also talk about bullying, what can cause it and what can help change it, and not just to be a bystander. What can make your conversations more interesting? What helped her grow her confidence? How work is not only about the paycheck, but also about doing something that you love to do. How she intertwined her personal and professional life. We talk about adoption that, as she says, is not a charitable thing to do, and all her learnings. How to create honest, deep conversations, both at work and at home. How resource-rich and resource-constrained is often just a state of mind. How to be an innovator and don't accept the status quo and look for other options. How to be more efficient in your personal and professional life. How she used dancing medicinally as a rehab and as an emotional outlet. How not everything that we love has to be turned into a career, but to make space in your life for the things that make your soul sing. So, are we ready for this last episode of the year? Have you ever wondered what makes people capable of creating changes that impact their lives and the world around them? What is their way of thinking, their mentality, their patterns, their perceptions of the world, their reactions to different life events? What influences them? My name is Cristina Puyol, and I invite you to join me in this adventure where we will explore together the mind of change makers. Today, I have with me an amazing entrepreneur, educator, activist, angel investor, and a mom. Through her various roles, Vicky Boo Davis works to bridge disparate communities, cultivating genuine appreciation for diversity, which in turn fosters innovation and promotes the proliferation of diversity in all areas of leadership. She was inspired by her son to channel her prior decade of tech and social into a new creation, the Wise Cities, which cultivates entrepreneurial leaders, empowering them to think critically and inspiring them to act innovatively to improve the fabric of society. She's also a member of the Beacon Angels and TBD Angels, investing in early stage companies, primarily in the areas of tech and life science. 
She's been a mentor at MIT's Venture Mentor Services. Her curriculum is so long. She's a speaker. She has been uh, given a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of prizes. So, and mentions, and I cannot, I mean, her curriculum is amazing. But I love Vicky most of all because she is an amazing soul with has so much energy. She's always happy and she's always trying to help everybody that is around her. And I really want her to share a little bit of her journey because it's not been without uh, bumps and, and big problems, but still she's always trying to bring together communities to help the people that are around her. And on top of that, she's a mother of three kids and she has an amazing story. So help me in welcoming Vicky Boo Davis. Hi, Vicky. Hi, Christina. How are you? I am very happy to have you here. I am really, really, really honored that you spend this time with me and that we can share a little bit. We met through dancing. Yes. And um, you, I love this story, actually, also why you kept doing dancing. So that's something that we also should talk. But you were a student of us uh, for a few years and um, and we really connected and we stay in touch. And actually, when I went back to Boston, we met in Boston. We met again and I've seen your kids grow and, and more kids coming into the family. So. <laughs> yes, been... we've known each other for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because when we met, you had a very little, little, little baby and now you have three. So. Yes, <laughs> three babies. I'm not too little anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. So a little bit I wanted to ask you is to share a little bit of your story, how you manage also to juggle your entrepreneurship with being a mom. And um, just tell us a little bit about you. Sure. Um, so my my life has sort of like a hodgepodge of, of a bunch of different experiences and things of that sort. You know, I feel that it's like this work of like tapestry where um, if you flip the tapestry over, it's like all these threads and messes and you're like, oh my gosh, what the heck is that? And then when you turn around, you're like, oh, okay, this all, this all makes sense. Everything that I do for work and as a mom, kind of, if, if I boil it down, um, it comes down to um, how I felt growing up. Um, I think uh, I've always felt different and it's really hard to kind of explain why, but I've always felt like a black sheep, no matter where I go. Um, and it doesn't matter if I'm with folks with matching characteristics or in infinity groups. Um, I just, I just still felt different. Of course, it didn't help that I, <laughs> I'm very introverted and can be painfully shy. Um, so I think that really magnified it, but it took me a really long time to be okay with the fact that I felt different. And then not only to be okay with it, but then to embrace it and then to finally own it. And I think the owning part of it is still a work in progress. Um, but, you know, I do now in my later adult life, realize that being different is good. And so I think that like, that is kind of one of two main threads in my life that have followed me through. So diversity, you know, of, of all sorts, right? So whether it's gender, socioeconomics, intellectual, neuro, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's all awesome. Uh, diversity, as you had mentioned in my um, intro bio, I strongly believe that diversity fosters innovation. And I believe that diversity is, is natural and is real. Well, you know, we may not always admit it. And especially during the nervous teenage years, we're always trying to conform. But deep down, we really are, you know, diverse and um, it's a natural thing. 
And that coupled with the combination of our starting points and our life journeys, our mix and match of diverse um, traits, this is actually something that is our unique value proposition. A unique value proposition is a term that's often used in entrepreneurship, but I like to use it in life because it's like, it basically gives us as individuals, it views us as an asset contributing to our community, contributing to our society and and contributing to the world because each of us has our own unique lens to how we view a situation, Um, perhaps a different approach to solving a problem, uh, both because of the viewpoint as well as the different skill sets, right? One's a coder, one's a creative, one's, you know, and and you approach how to solve the problem uh, differently based off of that knowledge. And I think the second thread is um, do something about it. Don't be satisfied with the status quo. And so while I always felt different and, you know, I was shy and everything like that, I I was never actually bullied, but I think my strong stance against bullying has something to do with the fact that I felt different and coupled with how shy I was. And so this is like actually an important topic that I talk with my kids about, but not just the anti-bullying part, but also not being a bystander. And so that leads to, I think, my second thread, which is to to do something about it. If somebody's being bullied, uh, if somebody is sitting by themselves, if something's going wrong, if something could be better, uh, don't just watch, don't just walk on by, um, don't be satisfied with the status quo thing, don't just complain about it, because everybody, it's so easy to just complain about it. You know, So instead, find out more about the problem, take action, what can you do? What can you do with what you have? How can you do it in your own way? Um, sometimes it's just as easy as walking up to somebody and saying hello, but sometimes it may be a little more, um, intricate, but, you know, and and not to just overcome it this one time, but to try and also fix it for good. So I think, how do I do something given my own journey, my own perspective, my own skill sets, um, how as a, as, as a mom and through my work, these two things kind of intertwine and make their way through how I um, raise my children and what I choose to spend my time on um, for for work. It's it's really interesting because you bring a lot of a lot of important points. One is being that, you know, as as human beings, if you're too different, then you don't survive, right? So we want to be part of the tribe. So it's a balance between I am unique and at the same time I want to belong. And so right. how do I balance that? And I see, you know, when, when people are in their teenage years, at least here, we can see it a lot. You see this group of girls and boys, which, and I remember from my teenage years, you know, they all look the same. They have the same hair, right. the same, but they know there's, you know, the shoelaces are different and then you're different, you know? And so we look at the difference, but not too much so that we don't stand out. Right. And, and it's interesting what you said about um, accepting it and then owning it. So what helped you to accept your uniqueness? I will call it more than being different is being unique. What helped you to accept it and own it? Um, I, you know, I don't think I can um, succinctly summarize that. Um, so I'll try to provide some insight maybe through some experiences because I do feel that like um, A, it's different for everybody and B, it's, I don't think usually it points to any one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But so I was raised in a very fiscally conservative family. And so um, uh, saving up for retirement and, and, um, you know, having a stable job back in the day, there was such thing as, you know, staying a job till retirement. Um, that was sort of um, impressed upon me as uh, kind of the, the life choices of, um, well, at least with a career path and that finding a job isn't 
doing something you love because that's called a hobby. Um, it's what can help you uh, put food on the table, roof over the head. And if you have extra, then, you know, save it for a nest egg. And um, somewhere along my life, I ended up discovering entrepreneurship and the excitement with starting companies. And um, I think with that, especially, but even if you're not running a startup or creating a startup, what I found is the most effective teams and the most exciting conversations that I have are with people who have a completely different perspective on something with me. And I've, um, I've always tried to surround myself with people who are smarter than me. Um, because if I'm the smartest person in the room, then like, you know, that helps off. But like, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm always trying to learn and, and I found that, um, there's a lot of different types of smart. And on top of that, if you, if you come from a different starting point, a different journey, a different decision, um, it reminds me of like, you know, books that when you read in your little, uh, or at least when I was younger, the choose your own adventure, like here's what you're presented with and which way do you choose? And each way has a different outcome to the story. And I found a lot of value in that. And I feel like some of the best ideas are when people can, you know, show you a different side that you're not familiar with. And I think through that experience, and also in work, I was in a lot of, um, you know, male dominated industries and environments and, and, um, but I have very strong opinions and a lot to say. And little by little, um, I, I, I realized that my differences in whether they're surface differences that you can see or how my mind works, they actually, I guess, contribute in a very positive way and very productively. So that was, I don't know if I answered your question very well, but that was sort of how I kind of started. I think it was the confidence from work, seeing in work that it was a positive thing. I think it had to come from the work side first, because I think I was always more confident in my work than in my social. And somehow in work, I was also, because I'm, I, I'm even more stubborn than I am, shy and introverted. And so when I wanted to accomplish things, you know, so seeing the value of my differences in my work allowed me to kind of, it started seeping in into my personal life and things of that sort. And, um, cause being introverted, I didn't really care about a social life. I mean, I have wonderful friends of great community around me that I'm so grateful for, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy being a wallflower in a social setting, but, um, so that little by little allowed me to see that the differences were a good thing. And then I think finally, so the work started her off. And I think what finally allowed me to own it was actually when I became a mom, because then all of a sudden it's not just about me, right? It's like how I'm shaping a life. What kind of, what do I want to, you know, present as, you know, kind of role model type example things, um, for my, for my children. Mm -hmm. And, um, that probably was what set it in motion that, you know, I can't really teach my kids to feel one way if I don't truly believe it, embrace it on my own. And that probably was the other and the, the other side of the bookend of um, recognizing that diversity is a beautiful thing and it is a natural thing, something to um, embrace and own. And then while I loved a lot of uh, the way that I was brought, I was very close to my mom, I was raised by a single mom and she and I were very, very close. I still follow a lot of um, parenting tactics that she had. But the one thing I will disagree about is that, you know, work is not just about, you know, the paycheck. It is about doing something, finding something that you love to do. And, uh, and I think that you have to sort of recognize who you are, what you're passionate about, what things matter to you. And you have to kind of, 
identify that. Um, and it may be a journey, um, especially, you know, with, you know, with young kids, it's, it's, you're evolving. So you don't know that yet, but to be cognizant about that and to start seeing these things and start processing that, um, to try and figure out and develop what is it that I eventually want to do? What is it that I'm going to, you know, impose upon like this world as, as, you know, as my legacy. And I think I, I personally don't care what my kids do as long as they're, you know, happy about it and that they are passionate about it, but also, you know, the practical sides that they are not starving and yeah. that they have a roof over their heads. Right. And so all of these things kind of, uh, you know, finding yourself and then the value of it and how do you translate that value into the action, the doing part. And therefore, if you are doing that, hopefully it's something that's meaningful, useful, and um, you can get paid for it. So you can <laughs> have, um, kind of the uh, necessary things to survive. Yeah. So. It's interesting because you really embrace what you are good at in one area of your life and just, you know, spread it over to other areas of your life where you're learning and applying in one area, then you put it on the other areas. And I think that's important because, in, you know, in coaching, that's one tool that we use uh, when someone is struggling. It's like, okay, if you're not struggling here, what is being useful, you know, that you can apply to other parts of your life. And I think in gaining confidence in yourself, that's truly important uh, that you can do. And one difference that I, I experienced when I was working in the U.S. is when you're in a company that is, um, you know, of, of course, based in good values, but they really trust their employees. So they really want them to shine. So I remember in one meeting that we have very informal on Fridays and they were saying, someone was saying, no, I'm sorry, I have a question. And, and, and the big boss was saying, no, if you're here, if you're higher, you're intelligent. So all the questions are intelligence. And I thought, wow, that's really nice to say because in Spain, everybody will be like, well, that was such a stupid question. And, you know, and they will make that person feel horrible. You know? And like, it will, if it was a shy person, it would take that person a whole lot of effort to ask again, you know? Right. <laughs> so, I think also fostering an environment where, you know, it's okay to ask something different. It's okay to, and, and the beautiful thing is you have that stubbornness, like you call it, you know, to like, I'm going to say it and then get good <laughs> feedback from it. So that also gives you more confidence, you know, to keep going, keep asking. So, yeah. So a little that's... bit of that comes with age. So what I'm hoping to do is also create a platform, and, and, you know, that if, if this can be more of a norm and, and, and the reason why I kind of chose to start a lot of, you know, so I, I also work with middle and high school students and beyond. And, uh, but I feel like that's a critical age where a lot of the conformity or the, the, the fear of being different happens a lot. Right. And if you can spin that in a positive way, it can reap benefits, um, not only in a career path of, um, entrepreneurial problem solving, which is something that's very important to me, uh, but also, um, on a, on a personal level of just how you live your life, that you being different from me and the next person is, is actually a good thing and hopefully instill that confidence and get a little bit of a jump start that I, I had to kind of find my way through. And, and so the, the bullying piece, which I'm, you know, have a strong stance against, I think a lot of times bullying stems from unfamiliarity and when something's unfamiliar, it can seem weird and unusual. And then you also have assumptions about things, right. That are most often wrong. And I think that the more you're exposed to 
things that are different from you, traditions, cultures, food, this or that, then do encounter yet another new thing, it doesn't phase you as much, right? And so it's not that you have to be exposed to everything in order to not feel that like, that's really weird. That's not how we do it. Um, but that it paves the way to just be like, oh yeah, here's another new thing that, that I get to learn. And I think that also, you know, so in addition to the, don't be satisfied with status quo, demand better, make it better, do something. Um, it's also, uh, I want to show my kids that like, Hey, you know what, as great as you are, and you are like everything to me, the world does not revolve around you, not around you, not around your lived experiences, your type of smarts. Um, and thank goodness for that, because it would be a really, really boring world, but that there are different types of smarts and can you recognize it and appreciate it? And, you know, I've always hated when people talked about like diversity and tolerance, because I, it's a personal pet peeve of mine, um, that tolerance projects is sort of like, okay, I'm going to grin and bear it. Right. It's not like, Ooh, I love it. I appreciate it. I welcome it. It's sort of like, okay, I'll tolerate it. Right. And to mm. me, it's, a, it's a different yeah. connotation. Yeah. And I want my kids to be able to embrace it and recognize it and really celebrate it. Um, and then so that, you know, hopefully my kids and other kids that I, you know, work with, they don't judge, they don't rolling assume, and that will lead them to be better adults because those assumptions, those you know, implicit, explicit biases, they will be somebody's colleagues down the road. They will be somebody's partner down the road. Um, I don't want them to, you know, if they're in a, say like a STEM field and a female engineer walks in as their boss and they're like, what the heck are you doing here? Right? Like mm. it should be like, Oh, cool. Like, nice to meet you. You know, I'm so-and-so yeah. right. Um, I'm Vicky's kid. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> But there's just so much like ripple effects that go along with, I think, personal and career, right? And and so um, I think that's why like it's just something that's important to me. And um, and because of that, you mentioned the the coaching technique that you have and reusing it, it it's sort of like an entrepreneurial term, like when we talk, talk about how do we scale. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so if it works for one, how do you impact and benefit multiple others? And um, so I I'm trying to figure things out um, with my own kids and how to raise it. And I figure, man, this is really hard work. And hey, you know, <laughs> yeah. if I've already done this much, can I just like replicate it and um, do it for as many kids as possible? And, um, that's where uh, my business cards, are. I also have the title mother hen because, um, like 12 years ago or something like the second year that I was teaching, there was like this one student who kept calling me mom <laughs> and at first. And I was quite young back then, you know? So I was like, you know, I was like, <laughs> like what's, why are you calling me mom? And then, you know, and then, you know, I was joking, but like, I, I started to realize it was really a term of endearment. And then other people started calling mom. And then like, um, somebody said, you know, you're like a mother hen. Like, even when we're done with your class, like you still take care of us. We can come to you if we need and this and that. And, you know, so you're like, you know, we spread out your feather wings and all of us little, you know, chicks come under and you, you protect us. And, and I really like that. And, yeah. um, so, uh, so I like it so much that I added it to my business card. So that's like, um, <laughs> so on my, that's one of my titles. So <laughs> <laughs> we forgot to put that in your curriculum. <laughs> I know, right. I should do that. <laughs> I think it's on my Twitter bio. I, I think, I think I do have it, but not, yeah, I got to add it to my official bio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Motherhand. That's so cool. 
So how how has it been for you to have these three kids and work at the same time and still be like on top of your business? How do you manage that? Um, I think I, you know, so there, there, so there's a lot of people who are smarter than me, in, including, um, my husband, but I, I like to <laughs> jokingly tease him and say that I'm more efficient. <laughs> <laughs> He's like a million times smarter than me, but like, and he, he may or may not agree that I'm more efficient than him, but I, I believe that like, there are a lot of things that I do with, with, um, my home life that I interweave into my work life and vice versa. There are things there's between, curriculum or, you know, slash way of, of teaching to the contacts that I make and talk to. And I know I'm not being very eloquent about this, but basically, um, seeing which parts of my life, can I, can I, um, kill two birds with one stone mm-hmm. and can they double up in the purpose for this meeting, that you know, proposal, this writing, um, and, and whatnot. And I think that is something where it honestly, saves a lot of time. I understand that I am, you know, very lucky that I get to do that because not everybody has a choice to be able to overlap their work and their family and personal life so much. Mm -hmm. So I have two biological boys and our youngest child um, is adopted. It was the adoption process wasn't something that was like top down kind of decision-making wise in the household. I, I involved our kids in the whole process in a very transparent way, which is, you know, how I believe you know, running companies should be as well. So there's a little bit of, you know, kind of that, but just, you know, a lot of the core values that I teach and, 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 and mention, um, I guess, skipping back to my work thing, talk about how I work with, um, young kids all the way through sort of, I'm, I, so I'm an, I'm also an angel investor as well. And so I teach in innovation and entrepreneurial problem solving and tell, um, and then I support and mentor people in different ages and phases for, um, early stage startups. And I'm also an angel investor. And so I, I, when I put on my angel investor hat, um, I tried to create an environment, um, and opportunities for, um, underrepresented founders and try to help kind of push away all the crud that a lot of these underrepresented founders often have to push through in order to be heard. And then by working with the pipeline of future entrepreneurs and also future investors, uh, that hopefully one day, um, there will be no more of this crud to actually have to kind of push away and deal with and push through. So, Mm -hmm. and again, that threads back to the diversity piece and doing something about it. Right. Um, and, um, and so that I have my, you know, work experiences in my, and things that are important to me that I'm weaving into a lot of, um, what I do for work. And so, but with the adoption part, you know, so when we were going through that, I mean, we had two stops and starts because why did you decide to adopt? Um, you know, that one, so it's interesting. Like I, I've always, for whatever reason, just ever since I was little, like three years old, always wanted to adopt. Um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly why, but like, I still remember this hazy vision of, um, actually the, I I don't remember everything else was hazy, but this part conversation, it was, it was very clear. I was three years old and I had my dolls and back then, you know, cause, um, yeah, there is just, uh, the, all the dolls were white. And, um, so I was playing with my dolls and, um, you know, didn't even really think beyond that. I love my dolls. I thought they were great. Uh, but adoption wasn't something that was like, it was a little bit, considered taboo back in the day and it wasn't publicly like talked about. 
And so I remember asking my mom, at what age should I tell my dolls that they're adopted? And so (laughs) thankfully my mom like took the conversation very seriously and didn't laugh at me or anything like that. And like, you know, and then, and then, um, and so, you know, so we, she had some great answers. Um, and then I said to my mom, do you think my babies will mind that? Like, they don't, that I don't, that their mommy doesn't look like that (laughs) because, you know, my dolls were all white and I'm not white. So, um, so anyway, like everything else around that was kind of hazy, but I do remember that conversation. So somewhere along the line, um, even though we had no family or friends that I knew that were adopted, it was somehow placed upon my heart. And I've done a lot of, you know, foster care as well as international adoption, um, advocacy work and speaking and things of that sort. But I always knew one day that I wanted to adopt even long before I knew whether or not biologically I could um, create a family and it didn't matter to me. Right. It was still like something that I, I wanted to do because I believe that there's more than one way to make a beautiful family. So, uh, you know, after having two great biological kids and me personally loving the kid part, but not the pregnancy part. <laughs> um, and you know, I was like, Hey, you know, I've always wanted to, um, adopt, I think now is the time. And this was, you know, my husband and I had talked about this before we got married. So it was not like a surprise to him or anything like that. And we had started the process. And then unfortunately I had two strokes. So for a variety of reasons of me working full time, um, my two kids being very, very young at the time, um, we put on hold while I was kind of figuring out how I was going to manage, um, working full time and raising two young kids full time, um, while I was, you know, post-stroke rehab fast forward a little bit. And, um, I felt like it was the time again. Um, my oldest was now, um, nine. So this is the one Christina that you had met. And when he was a little toddler and when I met you, that was when I I couldn't really walk that well. And it was because of that, that complicated, like pregnancy part of it. Um, and then this is is like the the part that amazes me that we, you know, this interview could go on for like three hours and we could talk about (laughs) each incident that you've been through that as she speaks, you will never think that she's been through all all these things like strokes. And after the pregnancy, you had a a broken hip or something like that. Right. That you, Uh, so yeah, I I couldn't walk after my first son was born. So, yeah. yeah. um, So there's so much like to dig into, but let's focus now on, on, on your daughter and on the, on the adoption. (laughs) So yeah, so my oldest uh, was around nine and my youngest was around in kindergarten, you know, and so we were also at this time open to, so we've always been open to a medical special needs child. And so when we were looking at different medical files, we we had a lot of very honest conversations. And one of the things that um, I think is important to know is that like adoption is not like a charitable thing to do, right? It is real. You're creating a family. And so honest conversations about what is right for your family and what isn't right for your family. It's not a bad thing to do. It's actually the right thing to do because you owe that to your own existing family and you owe it to the the future, you know, child that you will be bringing into um, the family. And so we talked a lot about, and I bought a lot of age appropriate kind of books to help me to help support me have these age appropriate conversations. Cause you know, nine in kindergarten, eight or nine in the new kindergarten, you know, we talked about cognitive and physical differences in development in, in kind of the purest medical definition and what that means. Then we brought in like, what can that mean for the person who's experiencing these differences and the struggles and the tools and things of that sort. And then we talked about, you know, what could happen outside of that person from a societal standpoint, 
you know, what are other people thinking? How do other people react? And sometimes it's just curiosity. Sometimes again, it's unfamiliarity. Sometimes it can be downright mean. You, you have the whole spectrum, right? And then from there, what would this mean for them as individuals being the older sibling of the newly adopted medical special needs child who may have other developmental, you know, delays as well? You know, so there were things that, again, this doesn't happen like in one conversation or is over a long period of time. And again, I want to stress the age appropriateness of it because, uh, you know, I didn't present a white paper to them. But we talked about, you know, what would happen if um, somebody made fun of their adopted sibling? Would my two uh, biological boys then be made fun of for their adopted siblings situation? And then the, and then the important questions of like, so how would that make you feel? Right. And would you end up feeling resentment towards the adopted child? Because mm-hmm. it kind of uprooted your life. Mm-hmm. Right. And you had these friends and then they started, you know, making fun of you because of that. And, uh, you know, would you be embarrassed? Right. And those were things that I think were important to talk about with them and to, you know, and, but through all that conversation, I think it just really opened their eyes and my eyes just to so much more beyond just those children, because the conversation did evolve into current day or um, current situations or people that they know or um, other things in school that, you know, um, you have tangents to, you know, but the, but are related to this conversation. And, and, and then again, it boils back down to the bullying piece and the diversity piece of things. Right. But these things were also important in how I was viewing, you know, they were, you know, little growing children, but who will one day again, be somebody's, you know, coworker or a partner, um, or, um, innovator addressing different problems. So, so, so there was that. And then when we actually met our, our daughter that we actually adopted, so it was no longer this abstract concept, but like this real person with her own personality, because we adopted her when she was three and a half. So she came as like a developed person, not like this newborn that, you yeah. know, was still trying to, and, um, First of us, it took us by surprise because she was this real firecracker, <laughs> like not someone that really needed protecting, um, you know, but yeah. rather was like the little leader of the house. And she had this deep love of learning and she was extroverted because the boys sort of took after me and be like shy and introverted. There was this social butterfly and she was very resourceful about things. And, and really, I think the squeaky wheel gets heard. So um, like you know, she, she, she grew up in a great orphanage and because she demanded attention because she felt she was worth it, like squeaky wheel gets hurt. And then everything in the neurons are firing. And, and, um, and so her visual impairment didn't really seem like such a deficit anymore. I mean, it's still, there's challenges. She's learning Braille. She's learning cane training and a bunch of other things like that. And, um, you know, she's essentially monocular. She can, you know, um, only see parts out of one eye, um, you know, and, uh, has no peripheral vision and it's probably looks like a fun house that even the doctors, you know, she has a rare genetic mutation. So even the doctors, the best doctors don't really know, but she's been in a bunch of surgeries and, um, multiple procedures and lasers and, and things of that sort. But the, the switch kind of came from, well, first of all, you know, it really changed our perception of what visual impairment means. Right? <laughs> it's like, Oh, you can do this. You can do that. Oh, you started doing this before my other two boys were doing this at that age. Right. And so it it, it kind of really like firsthand by personal experience, you know, really we're we're like, wow, we pigeonholed her a bit. Right. Like we, we, we 
boxed her in. And so the resources that we're, you know, um, helping her flourish with isn't just mere survival skills. It's like, okay, you know, how can we support her so that she can be the astronaut, uh, you know, abstract artist, firefighter, um, wizard, uh, and doctor that, you know, that, uh, that she wants to be right. She, she does indoor rock climbing. She skateboards. Um, she's doing acro and lyric, lyrical dancing and, um, Kung Fu, uh, you know, things of that sort. So, so, and, and the boys readily admit that like, if we were ever in an apocalypse, like she would be the, the, the survivor, she would, she'd be the one who'd last longer than any of us because she doesn't view life in, in, uh, kind of like the grass is greener on the other side. She doesn't view it as like, you know, I'm resource constrained. She, she's like, this is, this is what I can do. This is what, this is what I want. So I'm going to do it. And one of the things that I teach constantly is resource rich or resource constrained is often just a state of mind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and what can you do with what you have? Yeah. And she's sort of schooled us all on, yeah. on that point. <laughs> Sounds <right>? like, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so yeah, so she unexpectedly kind of like helped put an exclamation mark in like everything that I teach and was like, yeah, there you go, mom. Like that's what you teach. Um, you know, here's, here's your living proof of yeah. that. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's hilarious. She takes it to the next level, right? How, what you can do. And also it's interesting because even being an open-minded, a growth mindset, you know, all these things, we, all of us have a box somewhere. It can be bigger, but we all have a box. So when you have this little creature come in and show your box, you know, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, thought, I was like, dang, I thought I was, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. it was, um, it, it, she always showed. So one of the, my favorite anecdotes is, um, so my younger son, he came from like a birthday party. There were balloons. He loves balloons. I, I'm scared of balloons, but um, he, he, he loves balloons. And he was playing pretty rough with it. I think in the car and I was trying to tell him to like rein it in and, and whatnot. And, um, and then the conversation kind of, you know, changed, shifted to like, because I think I was like, it's going to pop, it's going to pop. And <laughs> I don't like popping balloons. And so, um, and then somehow the conversation turned to something a little more abstract. So I said, or, or it wasn't meant to be abstract, but I said, you know, would you rather, you know, have a balloon that you played with that popped after a while or no balloon at all? So I'm not quite sure how it led to that, but that was the question that I asked him. So I thought, oh, I think maybe I was trying to prevent him to, from being sad if he, you know, popped the balloon because he was only three at the time. Right. And I didn't want him to start whining about how like my balloon popped. It's like, well, at least you had a balloon to play with in the first place. Is it better to have a balloon that you played with and popped or, you know, never had a balloon in the first place. Okay. So that was, that was what the, the premise of um, that conversation was. And so my, my then three-year-old says a balloon that never pops. And I was like, Hey, (laughs) you know, that wasn't the answer that I thought that was option C. And then, you know, but like in life, there's always an option C, right? Sometimes we might have to be the innovators to find that option C because, you know, but status quo for him wasn't good enough. Like, I don't, I want a balloon, but I don't want a balloon that pops. So I want a balloon that never pops. Right. And so I feel like that's like, you know, an analogy for how we should view kind of life and, and, you know, and be, you know, again, 
like, don't be satisfied with status quo, then how would you, you know, use your gifts and your views and your journey and whatnot to, you know, find option C, whatever option C is, you know, for you. And, um, you know, and my daughter sort of has found her option C on a lot of things. And sometimes she'll on the grand scheme of things, but even little things like, you know, with three kids, my husband, and I work full time, we have two dogs. And so sometimes when she wants something, if it's not like urgent, she has to wait. Right. And, um, and by the time, you know, I turn around, like I realized that she got whatever she had wanted that she was originally asking for help. Um, she's like, how'd you do that? Right. And so I feel like that's how she, uh, lives her life. Like there's always an option C. And so, I don't know. So I feel like that, um, in some way we always feel that she's been like the missing puzzle piece in our family. Um, but, uh, you know, she really does seem to kind of nicely put the bow on the gift wrap of like everything that I'm and what I'm trying to teach, um, as a mom and what I'm trying to kind of teach and, and impress upon other kids, you know, in this world too. So, um, so yeah, so a lot of, a lot of overlap, a lot of, um, you know, that's why she saves me time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's teaching you leadership, entrepreneurship, you know, resourcefulness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, it sounds like she has option C and D and E and F, you know, and <laughs> sounds like she's the one being in a lot of resourcefulness <laughs> into your yeah. life. Yeah. So she ended up saving me time. Right. So, yeah, yeah. cause I remember when, when I was looking to adopt a medical special needs child, even though none of my friends were surprised, um, I had some friends who were very supportive and there were some friends who were like, you know, you've already had a, you know, a couple strokes before you already do a lot with your work to help people. And you already have two kids. Why would you bring in a medical special needs child to kind of rock the boat? And what if you get to the point where like, you know, and so the whole kind of like, well, the difference you make to this one child, because they were using the argument of like, well, you know, the, the impact that you make through your work and what if you can't work. And so I, yes, there's definitely challenges. I I do as the older I get, the more I realize that like self-care and all that is important. And I'm not saying that there hasn't been a lot of um, ups and downs in my health. And I do understand that in order to you know, continue doing my work and to continue being a mom, you know, that does have to be a priority. But, um, I will say that like, I I did luck out in that it wasn't that because we weren't the ones that kind of saved her. I feel like that she has really like, um, been a blessing to our family in, um, just what she teaches us in some ways, things are logistically more challenging, but she, she kind of did underscore a lot of the things that I was (laughs) teaching my boys and, um, and they're like, Oh, okay. So that's a living example of what mama has been trying to tell us all the time. I am very blessed to be working with a lot of brilliant people in innovation, especially in medical innovation is, um, in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And there have been overlaps in that from, just wonderful people I've met. Um, I even ran a design thinking meets hackathon where students were designing innovative solutions with my daughter being the, the, the user. And so it's just been, um, really kind of a, a two way blessing in how one really reinforces the other. And in, in a lot of ways, so not everybody's going to start their company. I understand that by 
having me be the founder of these, I, I do get to dictate my schedule. Yes, there's a lot more work and it's never done and you work a million hours, but at the same time, you know, I can take the time to go, you know, you know, to a kid's um, coach little league and to go to a recital and, and things of that sort. But, you know, I think that the more we think in the beginning of this talk, we, the, the word about like the passion and, 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 you know, loving what we do a lot of times we love what we do and we're skilled at what we do um, because it's um, there is kind of personal relevance to it. And I think that if you are lucky enough to try and find those threads and apply kind of those tactics to it, you might not be able to line up your, your personal new work that much as closely as I've been lucky enough to be able to. But I think that you end up being able to be more efficient and save time and overlap some of the things that you want to do which uh, allows you to be able to hopefully do uh, more things on, and, and, and feel fulfilled on both sides. So, But I think also important what you were sharing about having honest conversations, which you can extrapolate to any part of your life, both in business. A business works better when there's good communication, when a leader communicates well, whatever vision they have, and the team is has the space to communicate. Any trauma is, is, I always say this, any trauma will be easily more easily healed (laughs) if you have an empathetic listener you know so everything when there's good communication and the space to be able to be open about things and which is what you were sharing about how you were um, talking to your kids about this new situation and and I and actually I was thinking sometimes you don't have that opportunity to talk about it before some people prefer not to because it's hard to face sometimes all the different situations that you can have, you know? And then I'm thinking I had a special needs uh, sister. So we didn't have a preparation for that. And, and I can see all the things that you were talking, how it's interesting if you can talk about it before. It allows you, first of all, I think to get better connected in this case to your family, it can also be extrapolated to work, uh, but also to seeing options and then be surprised with what life really brings to you, like you were with your, you know, you're trying to save this kid and then it's like, okay, wait, (laughs) she she doesn't need saving, you know, right? we just need to be on our side and that's it, you know, and she will teach us what she wants and and then we can see what we can, you know, how we can handle this situation. So I think those are very important points that we can use in any area of our life in in terms of, uh, you know, having a communication that will help us thrive whatever the situation is. So that's a beautiful, beautiful story that you share. Thank you. And because we don't have a lot of time and I will talk with you for like hours and there's just so <laughs> much in your life that we can learn from. One thing as a dancer that I want you to share is what has dancing mean to you? Yeah, so um, dancing um, has meant different things um, as I've evolved as a person um, or as my body has not wanted to listen and do the things that I wanted to do. But I feel that dancing is a huge part of my life because it, it just feels, um, it makes my soul sing. So um, if somebody is lucky enough to find, figure out what it is that makes their soul sing. Now, you know, I don't have a career in dancing. Not everything you love has to be turned into, you know, a career, but to, you know, make space for it in your life, which I have to admit, I don't 
I haven't followed my own, <laughs> you know, kind of rule as, as, you know, cause they're just, you know, life is life. And so there have been pockets of time in my life where I, I haven't danced. Um, but dancing certainly when I was younger is different than dancing now because, um, there were just things that I could naturally do when I was younger that I, my body just won't do. And, and it's not all because of, you know, getting older, um, as we had mentioned earlier. So I couldn't walk after my, my first son was born. Um, I also 10 years ago got whatever reason, um, just, uh, lost, uh, some hearing in my left ear at the same time where I just had really, really bad vertigo. So I had to relearn how to walk and move. And, um, you know, my children were very young. My, my, my younger son was still like a baby and, um, I couldn't even carry him for a little while. And so, what ended up happening was that I used, I did use what I love to, to get better though, because, um, I did do physical therapy, um, and then it kind of plateaued and there were just a lot of things that I needed to be able to do in order to function because I couldn't drive. I couldn't take care of my kids. Um, I couldn't look at a computer and I was like, I, I gotta get better, right? There's so many things I want to do. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, there's certain things that are just very boring, very hard to kind of do. And, and sometimes it was, it was just also hopeless. And I, I found out that my love for dance was one of the few things that I was willing to, you know, uh, subject myself to movement. Um, granted I had to relearn how to use my body, but I didn't have to relearn how to do the steps and my connection to the music was still there. And it was the only thing I loved enough where I would get so sick and my eyes and my head would hurt so much and I would have to crawl into bed and I might be nauseous and I couldn't, you know, um, but I love dance enough where I was willing to subject myself to that, like on a routine basis every week to come to, you know, and the progress was, was slow. It wasn't like, Oh, you do this now. And like three weeks later, you're, you know, it was like years. Right. And, um, and every time I got back to, um, a level of dance that, you know, I was happy with, you know, I unfortunately ran into like a different, like kind of health issue. And then I started challenging myself of like, and as the more health issues I have and the more aches and pains I have. And I'm, you know, sort of a medical mystery right now that we're trying to like the doctor's trying to figure out what's wrong with me now, um, with a lot of bodily pains and just, you know, things that won't do what I want it to do. The challenge internally to myself is, you know, can I be a dancer who dances in a way that, um, somebody doesn't say, Oh, you, you're doing pretty good for your age or given your health. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, can I, can I, you know, Excel. dance so where, um, people can't tell that. And that's not an excuse. And so these are little challenges I play with myself, but they're fun little challenges. Um, and then there are certain things that I really, really, you know, haven't been able to do recently. And so I've challenged myself to find new ways of choreography that use, you know, especially in during lockdown, you know, how much space do you have? So I've been challenging myself, how much can I do within a three foot by three foot space mm. and can still make it look pretty. And if I can't spin due to vertigo and I have little space here, I can't, nobody can spin, even if you have no vertigo. Um, so how do we, you know, change things to, to do that. Um, how do I, if I can't move my hips in a way to do Latin dancing, the way that the hips are supposed to move. Um, I've had, I, I didn't know it myself, but I've had people teach me how to, you know, position my rib cage and other little tweaks to make it sort of mimic the same sort of look, mm -hmm. um, without being able to do, cause when you dance, you want to look three-dimensional and, you know, not flat and stuff like that. And so there's other tips and tricks. Um, that have been enriching to, you know, kind of do, but there are other, you know, interesting challenges of like, uh, I I've always connected to the music easier and, and, um, uh, then, then learning specific choreography. And then that kind of went downhill even more so after my strokes. And so, you know, I, I still challenge myself in that way because this is, this is my Sudoku or whatever to you know, prevent <laughs> Alzheimer's or whatever. 
um, yeah, you know, to, to kind of challenge the brain. <laughs> but um, if I'm not in the right mindset, then that's not the type of, you know, I don't learn a choreographed dance because that's a, a frustrating part. Right. So then I just go with like, whether it's partner dancing or just on my own and, and um, feel the music and dance that way. So there's even a time and a place for different types of dance. And even that was something that I had to learn to be okay with um, as a, as a dancer to be like, okay, how does somebody like, you know, see somebody who dances right like that, um, be able to dance it right away. And then there are other people who are, you know, used to solo dancing and have a hard time connecting with a partner, Mm -hmm. um, and be able to dance without being taught what the steps are. Right. Mm -hmm. And I find dancing with a partner so much more natural and easier and all that kind of stuff. Right. So even recognizing the differences within something like an affinity group and the different approaches and then, and then the different age groups and then the different, you know, um, whatnot, there's, there's all of the diversity piece, even within that kind of affinity, like that Mm -hmm. hobby, um, Mm -hmm. that I had to learn and grow as a person. And every time I thought I had it figured out as who I was, who I was changed (laughs) and it was a different, you know, kind of journey. So I've used it medicinally to kind of rehab and I've used it, you know, kind of, um, as an emotional outlet. Um, but dance is still something that is, um, big in my life. Who knows? So maybe I'll figure out a way to incorporate dance in, in like the next chapter of my life as a career, but like, you know, so far it's just like, you know, my, my personal thing. So, I mean, yeah. I would have to figure out how to be innovative and, and be involved in dance, not as a teacher, because, you know, like that wouldn't be the route that I would go for, for dancing. Right. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so, so yeah, so dancing, um, dancing and boxing, those were actually my two passions. Maybe your daughter has a new suggestion on how to do it. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yes. Right? So, yes. <laughs> you know, I think she'll be great at boxing. She's yeah. unbelievably flexible. So she does a little tap ballet you know, sort of thing, but she's also one of the dance students here has lyric lyrical for her age group and also acro and in her acro class, she loves it. Like, you know, very gymnastic and then, you know, but the choreography built in and, you know, different, different than, you know, gymnastics choreography, which I understand has as well, but uh, she's just super flexible. <laughs> the, time she, the teacher was telling me like she was stretching, she had her leg over her head. Um, and one of her classmates was like, how do you do that? And very matter of fact, very chill, you know, while her foot is still above her head, she's like, Oh, I'm very flexible. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, this is who I am. It's <laughs> hilarious. But one of the things that I was um, always very excited about was that like, you know, while dance can be very visual in certain ways there, I've, I've actually had to do drills where I was challenged to wear a blindfold to dance. Mm. and um for an exercise and so those were some of the things that i was thinking about when i when i knew that we were going to adopt a blind child um you know or visually impaired child um we we were open to any spectrum of you know vision impairment one of the things i was researching was can i impart my love of baseball and my love of dance um with somebody who's visually impaired so um with baseball there's something called beef baseball um and i learned everything about that um i read so many books about (laughs) people how to like raise a child who um was blind and then that's where i learned about different uh dance initiatives not a lot but you know certain things around the world that people have done for uh visually impaired dancers and reading about those reminded me of the drill that i had to do blindfold because it really is a um you rely on different parts of your body to kind of hone the technique again i think not pigeonholing you know somebody is like okay this is a dancer this is a scientist this is you know um it's like anybody can can be that and there's um different ways to do that 
Yeah, exactly. I think that's the theme of everything that you speak about and that you do and that you take action, which is just to see a problem, not a problem, but a situation, a situation, research, you really go deep into, <laughs> into any matter and then see all kinds of options, the one that exists and the one that may not have been thought or the ones that are kind of appearing out of the box, you know, getting out of the normal, you know, zones or, and, and then just taking action and doing something about it. And I think you've mentioned a few things over this episode over and over and over is just to take action. And so many times we see issues and we don't feel connected to the issue because it seems so far away and then we don't do anything about it. But, you know, we always hear that if not you, who, and if not now, when, right? And that can be applied to anything. And I think sometimes it's not, uh, what can I do? But just choose something. Right. do something because right. there's so much to do that it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be like going to Africa and building a school you know there's right. so much you can do around the corner and yes. if so if you're not overwhelmed with your life which you shouldn't you know we should figure out a way to live our life in a way that we design it then go out and look for some somebody that needs help right and sometimes, you know, that's that it might be closer than you think, because I think that a lot of times there's so much pressure for if we do take action, it has to be, you know, uh, you know, on, on, on a on a pedestal and it has to be this hero heroic sort of gesture. And and it doesn't have to be life changing in, in a kind of a that kind of impact. I mean, there's a lot of amazing technological innovation, any kind of pet peeve when you are using your smartphone and it bugs you. Like I, 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 you know, challenge everybody to kind of like, I, I think what it is is that you need to feel connected to the, the problem. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And That's if you don't feel connected to it, it feels like this, it's this big, huge burden to do that is insurmountable or that you're unable to do it. But if it's something that you're really, really connected to, and it's okay to do that. In fact, I think it's the right thing to do. And everybody is moved by different things, right? And it could be a personal experience that you've gone through. It can be something that you've witnessed through a loved one. It can be where, you know, a field trip, you know, that you, you know, and, and, um, something completely new that you've never experienced, but that really stayed with you and never left. And then, you know, one of the things that, you know, is, uh, another kind of key piece of my work, which I didn't talk about was just, um, I- I- inspiring, empowering problem experiencers to also be problem solvers, because a lot of times in this world, while, while we live in a hetero, so diversity is, this, you know, like I said, it's like, you know, it's like my soapbox is my, it's something that's very important to me, but like, I feel that a lot of times decision makers, are still like, even though we live in a heterogeneous world, the ones who are in charge of making decisions, it doesn't matter if it's for schools, for, um, you know, making products for, uh, even philanthropy, um, you know, you still have sort of the same persona for who, who are the decision makers. And a lot of times the ones that are the decision makers aren't actually the ones who have ever experienced the problem. Yeah. And it's not to say that you have to experience every problem in the world in order to um, solve it. And, you know, I always tell my kids like, yes, you know, it's good to ask questions and there's, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb, you know, question, but, you know, do you have to feel the bump and the bruise every time in order for you to like learn from it? Can you, can you do certain things on your own and and figure out, okay, I don't need to ask those questions because I figured it out. And then, but then there's another question here that I wouldn't have, I, I, I don't understand. And I wouldn't have even reached that level if I hadn't like kind of 
independently, self-sufficiently ask, you know, the kind of the prior questions before that. And so it's just saying like, can we work with people who have experienced these things so that it is a collective effort, but then sometimes it is this vicious cycle where whether it's education or exposure or this and that, it's like that, you know, um, that's that a hamster wheel too. So if we can break through some of that, those, you know, kind of silos and then say, okay, well, you know, you've experienced problems here, uh, because of your life journey that other people have been experienced there and vice versa. And everybody who has experienced something different is then compelled to do something about it, um, in, in their own way. Um, I think that the overall effect is, um, a better world, right? It's not to say that, you know, so, so it can be anything from like, okay, I've experienced this issue and I'm going to take charge, you know, about it. And it can be like the smallest little thing on your daily commute to work, but it can also be something as an innovator who creates something that has, you know, like um, a scalable and sustainable solution. Yeah. Um, but it comes from, you know, somebody who's actually experienced it because how many times have people from like, say a school committee or something, you know, placed policy and rules and, and for teachers to follow, but they've never themselves ever, you know, taught in a classroom. Right. Yeah. And so it's just uh, well, you know, you don't have to, if you're on that committee, but like, then maybe if you consult with somebody who has, um, and then, you know, so, uh, so I think that that's the other thing is that, um, you don't have to go and try and save somebody or something or situation, um, if you have no connection to it right? Because you're, 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 the road's a tough one and you're going to get discouraged. You're not going to know enough information and every piece of like, there's already a lot of variables and, and you're going to have to try and like, you know, do so much more research. Whereas like, if it's something that you're connected to, there's always that little gut check. Yes. You need more data. Yes. You need to talk to more people. Yes. You have to, you know, there's more than just you, but you always have that little data sample of one that gives you the gut check of like, this is why when the going gets tough, I stay with it. This mm -hmm. is why you know, I believe that, you know, the problem hasn't been solved. It may have been solved for somebody else, but this problem has not been solved for people like me. Right. And so, um, I think there's a difference between solving it like in a, you know, so I, I mentioned earlier, like not just solve it for one time, but trying to see like, if you can really fix the problem. So it's, it's, it doesn't recur. Um, but it doesn't have to be like a major problem. It could be, you know, something smaller, I think that's the thing is that people think it has to be of heroic proportions and, and yeah. it doesn't really have to be, it can end yeah. up snowballing to that, but it doesn't have to be to, to start. And so just think about like, huh, this is, this really annoys me. So what, what, what gets emotion out of you? I'm really angry about it, or I really, really love this. And everybody should feel this way and have this and whatnot, or this is so annoying, or this is really hurtful or, oh my gosh, I went through this. And, uh, you know, and I think it, the implications for this world are better just like, you know, like women's health, for example, is one of the underrepresented pain points in, uh, in investments. And, uh, it's just, it's just because right now there are more male investors and women's health issues. You know, you have to, you have to check one person out to, to understand what that feels. Whereas, you know, if something you experience, you're like, oh yeah, of course, that's a huge pain point. So your gut reaction of even like, do I delete that email? Do I not delete it? Do I reply? Do I whatever, you know, it stems from like what your personal things are. Anything that requires one extra step, you have a chance of losing um, also, if you have not experienced it, you don't even think it's an issue. Right. Right. So it might not even be in your radar. Like you don't see it as an issue. You see it as, you know, something that people talk about, but not really. You don't see why, why is that an issue and what's right. the issue in, in the bottom. So, right. Like, yeah. you know, people get pregnant and babies come out. But like, if you haven't been pregnant yourself, you're really not going to, yeah. you know, 
really exactly. understand it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that kind of thing happens and, you know, um, and then the problem solving piece of it and who does the problem solving piece of it and somebody who does recognize it, uh, but maybe doesn't have firsthand knowledge. If they don't connect with somebody who does have firsthand knowledge, then maybe what they're trying to, they're like, okay, like, so uh, I've never been pregnant and you're, so you're pregnant and you're experiencing this pain. So I think you should do this. Right. Yeah, and maybe yeah. well-intentioned, right. Yeah, I'm not trying yeah, to yeah, be yeah, sarcastic yeah. or anything, but yeah. you know, like it may not be the best the, the ideal way. Yeah. 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 Well, Vicky, we, we have to leave it here because otherwise it's going to be a very long episode. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. But I want to bring you back because there's a lot of other things that we haven't talked about and that maybe we talk about in a future episode. But I want to thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom, for the amazing woman that you are, the amazing entrepreneur person, mom, human being. <laughs> and uh, so much we can learn with you. And we'll put some note and the notes on how they can connect with you. But I just want to thank you again for your time and sharing all your experiences and wisdom. Oh, well, thank you so much for uh, for having me. And um, I had a lot of fun. So thank you. Thank you.